I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. you've noticed that everyone is a victim nowadays everyone is aggrieved it doesn't matter if it's you know lgbtq plus gx whatever it is it doesn't matter if it's a sexism thing a racism thing everyone's aggrieved everyone feels insulted everyone you know wants to claim some sort of special status in today's society so how did that all begin why did that all begin how did we become this nation of victims? We're going to ask the guy who wrote the book on it. Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, he's out with a new book, September 13th. You guys know him. You've seen him on Fox. I've interviewed him as well. Extremely smart, very interesting, very insightful. He wrote this new book, Nation of Victims, Identity Politics, The Death of Merit, and The Path Back to Excellence. Since we last spoke to him, his book, Woke Inc., crushed it. He became a New York Times bestseller. He also started an asset management fund called Strive, which really serves as sort of this anti-woke uh, asset management fund. And that's crushing it as well. He's such a smart, successful guy. He's a first-generation American entrepreneur, investor. Uh, before he founded Strive, he founded you know multi-billion dollar enterprises, including Royvent Sciences, uh, which he led as CEO. He graduated summa cum laude from Harvard. He received his law degree from Yale while working as a hedge fund partner. He's not an idiot, okay? He's a, he's a very, and he's not one of, you know, sometimes I think nowadays you hear people with all these fancy degrees and you're like, ugh, you know, but he, he really has seen it from the inside, which I think is why he is so much more insightful. You know, he's sort of, he sees it from, he understands kind of where these different places have gone and why it's bad. Uh, and not only does he call it out, as he has in his books, but he's actually taking real steps with Strive to try to address, you know, some of those ESG issues and all this wokeness, both in you know, corporate America, but also culturally, which he's done in in, in this book, uh, Nation of Victims. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I, I know I'm looking forward to it. Vivek Ramaswamy. We've got Vivek Ramaswamy. Vivek, congrats on being a New York Times bestseller. I mean, since we last talked, your book, Woke Inc., crushed it. You've started a new fund and you have another book coming out. So you've been a busy man. Yeah, trying to trying to stay busy. Appreciate that. I, I wish I have accomplished as much in, in less than a year. So. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. But uh, <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that, Lisa. Yeah, so I, I wanted to talk about the Strive Asset Management, and then I want to get into your book as well. You know, what is it, and and why did you start it? Yeah, so look, I mean, I I didn't know that I was going to do this at the time I started writing Woking, but I would say that it was the the 
at call to action at the end of the book that at the end of the day, I was calling on other people to do it. And I decided that it was time to actually wear my entrepreneurial hat again and, and do it myself. And so, you know, the, the, the point, the problem that I pointed out in my last book was the merger of business and politics, the way in which stakeholder capitalism and the ESG movement had caused companies to advance, not just product driven and profit driven agendas, but political and social agendas that many everyday Americans, particularly Americans whose money was invested in those very companies did not agree with. And I saw that as a large scale problem, both for the future of American capitalism and American democracy. And the simplest root cause of that problem was the asset management industry, the one industry that directed the flow of capital into all of the other ones, where you had three large firms, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, that together managed more money than the US GDP, that used the money of everyday citizens to advance toxic social and political agendas in corporate America's boardrooms that most of those everyday citizens actually disagreed with. That was a fiduciary breach. It was a breach of trust and no one was really doing anything about it. So this is what Woke Inc. was about. I you know, tried to do something about it by shining a spotlight on the problem through the book I wrote. I, um, you know, I think spoke out about the problem, but at the end of the day, the best way to solve a market problem is actually not always through state action. And this is something that I think is a good debate on the right, Lisa. And I think at a certain point, state action can make a positive difference, but all state actions have unintended consequences. And when I looked myself in the mirror, I said, look, if this is a market problem, it actually deserves to be solved through the market. And while I never imagined that I was going to start another business, I thought I was done with that part of my career and <laughs> moved on to raising kids and writing books and, and living a more peaceable life. I, uh, I, I decided that, look, this was, this was the opportunity where I could put my skill set best to use. And so I started an asset manager, Strive. We're competing with BlackRock. And the thing is, we're just bringing a different voice and vote to the table telling companies to focus on products over politics and maximize shareholder value that way without apologizing for it. Well, and I saw an article that the one week after you launched, your fund raised over $100 million. When everyone goes woke, it, it creates sort of an opportunity, doesn't it? As you've seen. I mean, it really, it, I mean, it does. I mean, for me, the thing that gets me going in the morning is not the business opportunity there. I mean, I've had fortunate to enjoy success in, in my prior line of business in the biotech world, et cetera. It is, it is to, I think, speak on behalf of 100 plus million people in this country whose money is being abused by someone else to speak in ways that would make their own blood boil if they knew what was going on. But you know what? There is a big business opportunity there. And, and I think that the irony is many of those 100 million people happen to be some of the best customers that any business could wish for in terms of having net investment power, net savings the ability to be a sticky, loyal customer and to be able to say, you know what, let's serve those people by speaking on their behalf. And, and you're right. So we got to over 100 million in week one. In the first three weeks, we got over 300 million. And that makes it, I think, the fastest non-seeded ETF launch, exchange-traded fund launch of the year. That was our first one. And, and you know, that's going to be the first of, of many products that Strive launches. But I think that the the bigger point is that nobody was competing with BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard on their ESG message. That was an opportunity hiding in plain sight. I kept saying that somebody should do it, not thinking it would be me. I, I again, <laughs> dedicating energy to starting something from scratch. I almost, you know, I haven't worked like 120 hours a week uh, since like 2014, 2015. And, and, and I uh, am reminding myself of what that's like, but because <laughs> I'm doing it again. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, it was it was too necessary of an opportunity for someone not to pursue. So I stepped up and said, "We're doing this." When did ESG start rearing its ugly head? Yeah, I mean, look, I think it, um, you know, it really started in the wake of the '08 financial crisis. Uh, I think you and I talked about this when we spoke about a year ago. But it was yes, when, we did. You know, a lot of capitalists on Wall Street wanted to apologize for the 2008 financial crisis, and what they said is, "Okay, don't attack capitalism." just reinvent capitalism to advance the social good and the environmental good and rectify racial injustice and social inequity and climate change. And you know, that created this arranged marriage where the left that usually wanted to go after big business before 2010 came around to saying that, look, we can actually enter a cynical arranged marriage here where you know, it's an arranged marriage between two sides that don't really love each other, but it's more like mutual prostitution, right? Each side gets something out of the trade. And, and that was the birth of this new monster that really snowballed into 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 where we get today and that that actually got me to the doorstep of my next book which is which is the one that's coming out now 
um, which is all about the culture that this new trend has perpetuated in our country, a culture amongst consumers, a culture amongst employees, amongst workers in these businesses that has taught everyone to think of themselves as a victim, as a victim of capitalism, as a victim of the system that gave us the greatest system known to mankind. Well, where which is the people up from poverty, where the people who ran that system realized that they could still stay on top by perpetuating this philosophy to every other individual from their employees to their customers to be able to perpetuate a philosophy that allowed them to keep their power intact, but to do it in a way that had bad externalities for our culture. And you know, part of part of what I'm doing through Strive and part of what I'm hoping to do through this new book is call for a new movement, not just in corporate America, not just in our economy, but in our culture to revive excellence, the unapologetic pursuit of excellence as the heart of what it means to be American, as the heart of our national identity. To say that if you're a company, if you're an oil company, an energy company, a, a company that makes natural gas, whatever it might be, you don't need to apologize for what you do. You don't need to apologize for the pursuit of excellence because the pursuit of excellence and the unapologetic pursuit of excellence be it through capitalism or be it in other respects of our culture, that's part of what got us this far. It's part of what, part of what it means to be American, in my view. And that's what we're missing. And, and I'm hoping through the combination of, of both my efforts in the private sector, as well as some of the contributions intellectually that I'm making through my book. And otherwise, I hope that, I hope that, that starts this national revival that I think we're long overdue for. You know, at what point is there going to be an acknowledgement that these things we're talking about is bad business? I mean, you look at the identity politics, all you have to do is look at Biden's spokesperson to realize that checking boxes is not always the right route to take, right? I mean, she she might be the, the dumbest press secretary we've ever seen. Or you look at some of this ESG stuff, you know, Europe's facing an energy crisis, California's banning the sale of new gas-powered cars by 2035, but then recently told its citizens not to charge their electric vehicles. Uh, due to a heat wave. So at, at what point will there be acknowledgement that, you know, we should just focus on what works and what's best? Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's when when people start to take a hit in their quality of life. At the end of the day, and I, and I don't mean to be dire about this prediction, but when I look at what's happening in the field of medicine, for example, and I, I, I you know, had my first career in the biotech industry, I you know, was trained as a scientist, in Harvard Molecular Biology, my, my, my wife's in academic medicine, we have a front row seat here. Look, at the end of the day, there's now you, UPenn Med School recently announcing that certain races will no longer have to apply with an MCAT score. That's the test that determines whether or not you get into medical school or a big part of one of the admissions criteria. The USMLE, where after you graduate from medical school, you have to take as part of your licensing process of becoming a physician to go into residency, has now been step one, has been converted into a pass-fail exam. There are racial quotas applied at every step of the way. And I, I just ask ourselves, I mean, whether you're talking about protecting black lives, white lives, human lives, we would want to put the best people on the front lines to take care of other human beings in their most vulnerable moments of need. And yet now we're entering a brave new world in which the people who are put in those operating rooms, the people who are put in those emergency rooms, the people who are put on those ambulances are going to be in those positions in part, if not in large part, because of the color of their skin rather than for the competence of their mental faculties or their skill sets as a physician. I think that's scary. I think at the end of the day, there's even a news report today about uh, an affirmative action program at NASA that had people working on rockets that weren't had no business working on those rockets, but in part were placed in that position because of the color of their skin. I think it's going to be when we ultimately face, I hope not tragedies, but at least a, a, probably a decrement in, in human flourishing, in the human experience, in healthcare, that we take a step back and say, okay, how much damage have we done to the very human beings who we thought we were protecting by adopting these kinds of toxic affirmative action driven policies. And that, that's, that's a big part of what the whole new book is about, is about the death of merit in this country. The revival of meritocracy is part of the revival of what it means to be American. It is why most immigrants come to this country. It is why my parents came to this country, to a place where they could pursue excellence and pursue merit unapologetically and to be rewarded for it. And once we lose that, I mean, that is one of the things that binds us together across our diverse genetically inherited attributes 
if we lose that, not only do we lose the system that gave us all of the great things that we've enjoyed over the last two and a half centuries as a country, we also lose one of the aspects of our shared national identity itself, which is something that's important in, in a diverse democracy like ours. And so we lose not just once over materially, but we lose twice over in terms of our shared national identity as well. And all we're left with is the fractious tribes that are then left with tribal identities that fight it out as human beings always have. So, so I think it's important for a couple of reasons. Well, and it's concerning, too, to your point about hopefully no tragedies happening. I mean, look, there's been articles about trying to diversify pilots and things like that, which obviously is concerning because you just want who's best at the job and who's going to get you safely to point A to point B. Uh, yet that gets under. That's right. Yeah. And so you're right. There's some concern there about what does all this mean for the future of the country? And, and you know, look, I think that I think what's at stake for the future of the country is, is look, I think we have we've got to take the the. the best argument for the other side. Okay, what's what's really going on here? What's driving this obsession over the equity-driven agenda, over the anti-merit agenda, over the, you know, over the pro-victim agenda, over the pro-excellence agenda? And, and, and by the way, Lisa, I think that this is not unique to the left, okay? I, I'm, I'm increasingly worried about the spread of victimhood culture from the left to the right. I, I would have seen an opportunity for the conservative movement to step up and say that, look, we're going to be the party that stands for unapologetically pursuing excellence in a way that's contrasted with a party that that defines its identity on perpetuating victimhood. Instead, what I what I worry that we might see is actually a shift in the other direction to say that, well, you know what, you're a victim. Guess what? We're a bigger victim, too. And we play this victimhood Olympics between the different tribal groups where there is no gold medalist at the end of the day. If anything, part of why I'm worried is that that's the direction we're actually heading. Now, I, I think that if you take a look at the other side and, and you know, sort of see, well, what's, what's the basis? What, what's the account for why we're so obsessed with this apologist narrative that perpetuates victimhood and, and results in this full frontal assault on merit? No, look, I think it's, it's a misunderstanding of the kind of equality that we actually hunger for in our country. And I'm a big proponent in, in, in the book as well. I mean, Nation of Victims is in part an indictment of victimhood culture, but in part it is a call for a new national identity as well centered on the pursuit of excellence. But part of that national identity involves restoring civic equality, which is something that we're missing in our country. And so I'm a big proponent of reviving civic equality, reviving the equal voice of every citizen in a democracy to express his or her view on political questions, irrespective of the number of dollars he or she controls in the marketplace. That's what living in a democracy is all about. That's part of what we've lost. That's part of what we've lost as a consequence of the things I talked about in my last book, like stakeholder capitalism or the ESG movement that have appointed a small group of quasi-aristocratic monarchs to settle political questions like how we're supposed to address climate change or how we're supposed to address racial inequity. Those are the kinds of questions that in a democratic society with true civic equality, every citizen gets to exercise his voice equally in the public square through free speech and open debate and settle those disagreements through the political process. That's what we've lost, is our sense of civic equality as citizens. But because we've lost that sense of civic equality, we take that impulse, that sense of inequality that, that many people in this country may feel like we have, which in some sense is correctly placed. We have lost our sense of civic equality, but channel those impulses to then call for material equity. And I, and I think that, you know, I've said it before, it makes a lot of people mad when I say it, but I'll say it again, excellence and equity are fundamentally incompatible with one another. If, the if you really believe in the unapologetic pursuit of excellence, yes, that's going to mean that we have an inequality of results along a wide range of axes. And some of those could include even axes that map onto different identitarian boundaries. I don't care about that as an American. What I care about is restoring the equality of every human being as a citizen, as a co-equal citizen, and if we're able to do that and get that right, we don't need to be so insecure about the inequality of results that might obtain in a wide range of fields, be it inequality of results on the basketball court or inequality of results on your MCAT scores. It doesn't much matter if we all respect one another co-equally as citizens. And the irony right now, Lisa, is we're missing both of those things at the same time. The good news is I think the solution to one can actually help deliver the solution to the other. Quick commercial break. Back with Vivek Ramaswamy on the other side. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. 
This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. Is that in part why we're so divided as a country, this focus on identity politics and, you know, sort of the death of merit? I think it's a symptom. So, so I think it is okay. a symptom of the problem. Is that why? I wouldn't necessarily say that's the cause. It definitely makes things worse. It's a symptom of a deeper problem in our country, which is right now in the year 2022, the lack of a shared national identity. Okay. Ask the question of, what it means to be an American in the year 2022, I don't believe that most citizens can give you a good answer to that question. I'm not sure I can give you a good answer to that question. And I think that's created this black hole of an identity vacuum at the heart of a nation, at the heart of a generation, that when you have a vacuum that runs that deep, that's when poison begins to fill the void. That's when identity politics begins to fill the void. That is when scientism, which is a religion that differs from the practice of science, when toxic philosophies like scientism begin to fill the void, when identity politics begins to fill the void, when tribal identities, when victimhood begins to fill the void, it fills a void, a black hole that runs so deep that used to be filled by more rich shared identities, identities like you know national identity built around patriotism or faith or hard work for that matter, something I talk about extensively in the book, a, a source of identity that we've lost in our country, family, whatever it may be, the kinds of things that used to fill our void of identity and even purpose and meaning, as those, as those things have disappeared, that's what allows identity politics or pick your favorite toxic philosophy to fill that identity void instead. And I think the right solution has to be something more than just doing even a lot of what I've done in the last couple of years, frankly, you know, playing the game of whack-a-mole, you know, hammering out one of those toxic philosophies and forms of poison one by one, to instead filling that void with something far more meaningful that doesn't stamp out the poison. It dilutes the poison to irrelevance with something that's far more meaningful, far more rich, and far more substantive. And, and that's what I try to do in the second half of my book. I mean, that's, you know, Nation of Victims. I mean, that's, that's the, that was something I get to at the end of this book that I don't really get to at the end of Woke Inc., which is all about the problem. You know, here I think it, it, it starts about analyzing the cultural problem of even victimhood culture outside of corporate America. But at the end of the day, all of this is a symptom of that deeper national cancerous void, that black hole 
that we need to fill with an affirmative vision of what it means to be an American, what it means to be an agent, a free agent in a world where human beings are free agents whose behavior is not necessarily determined by the tectonic plate of group identity that you're born on. Well, guess what? The right way to get beyond that is to have an affirmative vision of what it means to be an American, what it means to be an agent. And look, the, 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 those, are, those are deep, iconic questions, century-old, age-old questions in, in human history. I can't promise to offer all of the answers in, in this book, but I do offer uh, my perspective on at least what the beginning of an answer could look like in contemporary America in 2022. You mentioned hard work. It does seem like the idea around work ethic and what a work ethic is has changed dramatically in the country. When and mm-hmm. why do you think that happened? Yeah, look, I think that that this is complicated. I mean, I think that there's a long-term answer and I think there's a, there's a shorter-term answer. The short-term answer is easy. The short-term answer is that the government created a lot of the policies that fostered the anti-work culture that we now suffer over the last three years. I mean, I think the pandemic supercharged a trend of government spending that said, you know what, we're going to send you money whether or not you need it under the banner of aid, where even when you take that aid away, one of the things the economists learned is that, you know what, you may not actually go back to behaving in the same way that you did, even when your income level drops to what it used to be, because you got accustomed to laziness. You got accustomed to the idea that you actually didn't like work nearly as much as you thought you did. Or, or in, a, in a deeper sense, you actually, in a deeper sense, you like the work in the sense that, you know, you, you like you, you, you like candy in the short term if you're a kid, but it doesn't really satisfy your deeper hunger. Well, the same way, sitting on a couch on a given day, and if you look at half the adult male population now, how much additional time that they're spending not at work isn't being spent even by being industrious at home. It's being spent by actually just sitting in front of a screen at home. That becomes something you become acculturated to such that even if that you had an economic incentive for two years over the pandemic to be able to adopt that seated position on the couch, once those incentives change, your behavior doesn't. Your, your butt stays pretty, pretty glued to that couch at the end of the day anyway. So the short-term answer to the question of how we got here, Lisa, is I think part of these are pandemic-era policies that had the predictable consequences that anyone would predict they would have. If you give money, people stay at home, they're going to stay at home. And, and by the way, this is something that's, I think, mostly I pin to, uh, you know, I, I would say liberal policies, but conservatives from Josh Hawley to Donald Trump, I hold partially responsible for too. Both of them said they would not support the aid package as one of their final acts before Trump went out of office unless it gave $2,000 in aid rather than $1,600, which is, by the way, the same policy adopted by Bernie, the same policy position adopted by Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris. And so, you know, I would have never imagined that I would have seen Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris and Donald Trump and, and Josh Hawley on the same side of this question. But no doubt that very bill helped contribute to the short term binge of laziness culture that we've seen spread across the country. Now, there's a bigger question. I mean, this isn't just the last few years. I think we are going through the largest intergenerational wealth transfer in human history from baby boomers to millennials and Gen Z. And being, there's something about being on the receiving end of that that, I mean, I'm not personally, I'm a millennial, I'm not personally on the receiving end of it, but, but I'm speaking for my generation, is, um, you know, something that inculcates a, tol- a culture of entitlement, a culture of, of loss of purpose in, in sort of having to actually be self-reliant when you know that that safety blanket exists. But that safety blanket might exist for one generation, it's not going to exist for the next one. And so I think that this is also against a broader uh, generational transfer and, and even a wealth transfer in human history that created the backdrop conditions for government policies that then fueled that culture of laziness and supercharged it with the potency of steroids. Part of the challenge, I, I agree with you. I, I almost asked you about COVID, but I, I didn't know, uh, you know, I thought you would have a, was interested in hearing what you had to say more broadly um, than that specifically, which you did. But, you know, I was going to ask you, so part of the challenge with what we're facing is this victimhood mentality is being indoctrinated with, you know, kids, with with students, right? It's being indoctrinated in school. You know, how do you reshape and break that mentality that is being instilled in, in so many young people right now? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that it's going to have to involve a bottom-up revival of the, sh- the shared cultural identity that means what it means to be American, to be woven back into our schools in a way that it isn't today. So, so education, I think, is the most single most important frontier where if you teach a kid to think of himself as a victim, he will think of himself as a victim, right? Th- this is like what I call kind of a social Heisenberg effect where 
you know, you see a lot of these surveys that schools will do and they'll report back and say, no, 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 this is how the kids are actually already feeling, which is why we need to be able to address them. That's the argument you'll hear from the other side. And, and the way I sort of bring up the social Heisenberg principle is the Heisenberg principle in physics refers to the fact that you cannot actually measure the spin of an electron at the same time that you actually find what the spin of that electron is. You, you, you affect the underlying phenomenon. Well, if you ask kids consistently about how they see themselves as victims, you are changing the underlying phenomenon itself. You are causing them to see the very ways that the so-called surveys or questions or assessments point them to feel. You see that with respect to victimhood broadly, with respect to gender identity, with respect to sexual orientation, you see it across the board. And you know, at the end of the day, how do we fix that? Look, I think that that's a complicated question. What I can tell you is the window we're working with is if the kids who enter first grade today graduate from 12th grade before we've gotten that right, we've lost a generation. And if we lose a generation, I don't think we have a generation of, of margin left in this country before we clean that up. Um, I, I think that a more promising place to start than fixing the institution of the school is at least to compete with the school in the institution of the family to be able to you know, both have the family as the place where we inculcate actually the values of self-reliance, of industriousness, of pursuing excellence unapologetically, of actually having a competing voice on at least the moral upbringing of a kid in the, in the household and the family to at least leave it to school to teach them how to add up numbers and teach them how to, how to you know, put commas in the right places in teaching them grammar. Great. Make that the job that schools are responsible for, but actively compete with the schools. In the short term, I'm sorry to say, that's probably going to be the best short-term option. And, and I do think time is scarce, and we need to be thinking about how to be able to address this in the very near term, is going to have to involve families and parents even more consciously stepping up to the plate than they have in the past. And, and I don't mean to turn everything into a business opportunity. I mean, this one won't be one that I'm pursuing, but I do think that I hope someone else does think about competing with respect to, you know, it's funny when you, you grow up in a uh, first generation uh, Indian American or Asian American household, you, you, you unfortunately have to do your tour of duty through like something like a Kumon. I don't know. Do you know what Kumon is? I don't think so. Uh, does, okay. All right. Yeah. Well, um, good for you. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just like, it's a supplemental like math and, uh, you know, math and, and training that, you know, kids will go through in elementary school where, uh, you know, a lot of Asian immigrants will feel like their kids uh, didn't really get what they needed to out of the school day. And so they would give them the added math tutorials that came on weekends and in the evenings through, a, I think, a rather big business built across the country called Kumon. And so I, I, mark my words, any East Asian or Indian American immigrant to this country, ask them what Kumon is, they're going to know what it is. But I use that as an analogy to say that, you know what, as sad as it may be, every American may need to think about outlets for civic education and the revival of civic identity and self-reliance and, and, and the cultivation of character that you would have hoped came from the teaching of history and the teaching of literature and the teaching of, of American ideas in our schools to find other ways to make sure that our next generation is at least inculcated with those values. And is everyone going to do that? Absolutely not. In fact, it's Part of the problem actually rests at the level of family formation in you know, cities across this country. But if enough people take it up as a cause, then I don't think we'll be at the stage where we've lost a generation, but have taken their responsibilities as parents seriously enough that we at least have enough of a foundation to work from to also then play the longer game of reviving our educational system itself, because that's not going to happen overnight. Quick break. More on the nation of victims. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. I agree with you that the family and parents are, are largely responsible to try to guide their kids through some of this mess. I don't know why this came to my mind sort of off color, but... Uh, the uh, libs of TikTok had posted this video of a teacher asking her students what their pronoun, what they wanted their pronouns to be. And one student said banana and the other said rock. So they made her call them banana and rock. <laughs> I don't Are you know, kidding? Just, <laughs> As a joke? Or, yeah, yeah, or were the they kid, no, they're I... joking. They're in fifth grade. Okay. I think it's kind of genius. Clearly their their parents, uh, you know, taught them right. But <laughs> Well, I, I, like, I literally don't know whether to joke because I, I, actually, um, so, so I had my, my cousin and her husband were over, over the weekend and they said one of the things they were struggling with with their kids' schools was that actually, and, and, and they're, they're pretty left of center as a, as a side note, but just to give you the context here, we're pretty upset that actually their school has uh, bent over backward to make sure the kids are identified as whatever they want to be identified as, including kids who even actually wanted to identify as furries. And, and, and so furries was the word they use. I don't even know what that means, but, but I thought that was a joke actually at that time, but it turned out that was actually a very serious issue for the kids who did want to identify as furries. And so literally when you were saying that, I wasn't sure whether you were actually talking about a, a smart response that their parents actually had given them or whether this was actually a serious identity crisis. But at the end of the day, um, it, we laugh about it, but it's not its not a laughing matter more broadly, where even if we get past the gender identity fixation, it's all just a symptom of a deeper search for purpose and meaning that is completely missing in an entire generation. And until we fill that void, we're going to be, keep facing this problem that's going to surface and rear its head in, in one new form after another. And, and, and look, I think that this is where I think, you know, all Americans, but, but I, you know, particularly am am uh, interested in, in calling on the conservative movement to do better. Uh, you know, if, you know, if, if I'm going to call out uh, someone, I'm going to hopefully call out the camp that I think has more likelihood of, of delivering success here to step up to the plate and offer that affirmative alternative vision. And, and it, was, it was a kind of a dilemma that I even went through in writing the book. Like one of the, one of the cases that I repeatedly made in the book in my early drafts of it was calling for the revival of teaching our history, of remembering our history. And at a certain point, I kind of looked at myself, okay, like I'm saying that so much in my book that 
how much history am I telling in this book? And at the end of the day, it was actually kind of a wake up call to say, okay, you know what? Let me just scrap half of that and stop talking about remembering our history. And let's actually remember our history. And then that gave rise to a couple of chapters. I mean, you know, one, you know, you'll hopefully, you know, enjoy reading about the history of the civil war, tracing actually a lot of the victimhood culture that we experience today to a victimhood culture that began in the reconstruction era in the wake of our civil war. And then asking ourselves whether this is actually even unique to this moment in American history. I mean, other cultures is might it? have dealt with this. You know, and, and it's, it's not unique to our culture, actually. It's actually staggering how much the modern American moment, down to the victimhood culture, down to even inflation, down to even policies that, that incentivize people to stay at home, were replicated in one of the many falls of Rome and the fall of the Roman Empire, which is what led to actually much of this book containing and tracing for a couple of chapters a lot of Roman history. And, and one of the things I learned, Lisa, was that we, we frequently talk about the rise and the fall of Rome. The, the most obvious point I would make is that actually after refreshing myself on it in preparation for this book and writing about it was that there was no one fall of Rome. There were many rises and many falls of Rome. And I think that that study of history gives, gives me some hope. It hopefully gives us some hope that there is going to be no such thing, I hope, as a rise and fall of the American experiment, but many rises and many falls. And, and we may be at a, at a relatively lower point, but we can still be reborn iteratively many times over as Rome was. And, you know, it's funny. I mean, it's staggering, actually, how it, it's, it's chilling almost. It's eerie how similar many of the travails we face today in our country are just reminiscent of what Rome went through during many, many of, of, its, of its rises and falls. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I think studying history, not just talking about studying history, but actually remembering our history. And by our history, I mean American history, but I mean our history, meaning human history even more broadly, is, is a good way of, of potentially reviving our own identity by, by taking some of these debates out of their modern politically fraught valences and to actually just cast them in historical context where we can go back to actually debating the ideas honestly. And, and some of it leads you to some, maybe some sentimental places, unhappy places. I mean, look, that, that trait, the, the end of my section of the book talking about Roman history ends with a, a question. It's a hard question to answer, which is how long the Roman Empire even lasted. I mean, the, the Eastern Roman Empire actually lasted a thousand years before falling to the Ottomans in, in uh, whatever, the mid-1400s. Whereas the actual conventional fall of Rome, the Western fall of the Western Roman Empire was, was around the, the second or third century AD. And so whether or not Rome itself lasted hundreds of years or thousands was simply a matter of definition, depending on whether you counted the Eastern Roman Empire going on to outlast the West or not. And, uh, you know, it paid me to write it as I wrote this part of the book. It was the last line in one of the chapters, but I said, maybe America will be the same way. And, you know, America is an idea. America is an idea more than a place. America is a vision of what a place can be. But, you know, whether or not Rome lasted hundreds, hundreds of years or thousands depended on whether or not you counted it as outliving the cleavage of the Western and Eastern Roman empires. Maybe America will be the same way. I don't know what avatar this idea will take. But I, um, I, I say that not to be uh, foreboding but to actually be honest about the possibilities of where we could go. But what I call for at the end of the book, I hope, is, is, is a reincarnation of the core idea that animated the birth of this nation 250 years ago, something we've forgotten and something we're going to have to revive, not just in our economy, which is the, the sphere that I happen to be working on in my day job, but in every sphere of our lives from, from our educational system to our politics. Now, I certainly believe we're on the decline. I, I don't think it's over, but, you know, potentially. I don't know. I mean, I read the section of the book with the, with the you know, going to, tracing the rise and fall of Rome. And, and I actually took some inspiration from it. There were, there were many rises and yeah, there were many Yeah, please give falls. us some. I think we need and, some inspiration. <laughs> we might, we might be in the middle. We might just be in the middle of the story and not the end. So that's, that's, that's how I felt about it at least. Well, that's good to know. Uh, what, what was your favorite part about the book? I, I, my favorite part about the book was, was the, um, the challenge of taking on the best articulation of the other side. Uh, you know, I, I really, um, yeah, actually, actually uh, worked with a, a friend of mine on it. He was a former classmate of mine in law school. Uh, you know, he's a philosopher. He had went on to do a philosophy PhD. You know, I think he considers himself left of center, but he was kind of my uh, you know partner in, in actually putting this book together. He helped me a little bit, you know, along the way, even in honing my thinking. But in terms of actually putting the book together, 
you know, it was actually very interesting to do it with somebody whose views on many of the underlying political questions are even different than mine, which gave me an opportunity to really examine the best arguments from the other side. And, you know, I think that it's easy to, you know, preach to an echo chamber. Uh, that wasn't my intention with Woke Inc., certainly, and, and I've been pleased with how the book, at least more recently, has been reaching a wider range of, of audiences. But, but, you know, no doubt, you know, a lot of conservatives love the book. But I think in this book, my, my goal was certainly to take on the best articulation of woke rationale, the best articulation of what failures needed were in need of recompense. And so it was fun to almost try on a different set of clothes. And you know what? You're, you're shopping at the store and you see an ugly set of clothes. You know, one version is you don't pick up off the rack. The other version is you pick it up off the rack, you try it on, see how it fits, and then put it back on the rack. But then you really understood why... <laughs> why you found it ugly. And maybe, you know, one out of a hundred times, you might even change your mind for, for how it looked in the end. That was, that was what I enjoyed doing most with this book. And so, you know, I, I, I'm told that that's not, um, that's not the best tactic for selling books. The good news is that wasn't uh, necessarily my goal with this one. The last one was a smashing success. Uh, that's great in terms of, you know, how many people it reached and copies sold and whatever. But, um, you know, I, 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 um, I'm interested to see how this one plays out because it will be, I mean, there's an entire chapter on, on, you know, conservative victimhood. I think there's an entire chapter on aspects of our victimhood culture that I don't think have been discussed enough. Just don't mention me in that section. <laughs> no, I don't. It's an idea. So, so I think, I think it's a little bit of, um, yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, it was mostly look in the mirror actually, Lisa. So I think that, um, I think that was actually the part I enjoyed most about this book was was trying on the set of clothes and having an even better understanding of why I still put them back on the rack. Did you change your mind on anything? You know, I did, um, but it wasn't a political question. It was um, it was something that I did change my perspective on. And so I tell a story of a of a neighbor of my aunt in the Midwest who we visited, and it was a it was a it was an interesting story. But you know, he we had a. The long story short is that we had a had, had a sort of a disagreement where my uh, my aunt's house, you know, had they'd lived there for years. They had this new neighbor who came and mowed the lawn in a way that had a bunch of grass spill over onto the driveway, and um, and and this bothered my my aunt and uncle, their immigrant family, but they don't say anything about it. They keep their head on, they keep their head down, and keep plowing on. And we visited them. There was the guy mowing the lawn. They had made clear that they didn't like it, but he thrust the lawn into their driveway, trivial point. Okay. So, so I, I, you know, wave them down and uh, say, Hey, look, um, you know, we'd, we'd appreciate it if you didn't mow your lawn in this direction, but have it fall on your driveway instead. And, you know, I will, t I won't, I won't spoil, uh, I won't spoil the book, but the long story short is that resulted in an accusation of, of my being a racist, having profiled him and being reminded by him that, my skin tone was four shades darker than his and that I shouldn't forget that. And, uh, you know, it even ended with a, with a death threat God. and and what happened in between, I'll leave it to the book to, to, to reveal. But to me, that was a, that was a startling episode. I mean, that was an episode from a few years ago that I won't forget, but, uh, I guess, I guess the thing I changed my mind on was, whether or not this was a guy who actually just needed to be somebody who I needed to be, you know, stay away from and view as part of the part of the problem in our country versus somebody who on a given day, uh, you know, happened to have not behaved as the best version of himself. And it's something that happened during the course of my writing the book was actually his wife uh, months later, you know, came back and was trying to make conversation with my aunt and she reported this back to me. Um, you know, got 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 a sort of uh, meek and, and earnest apology from from the the lady from 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 his wife, and that began sort of a friendship between the two families that I think otherwise wouldn't have wouldn't have played out. And so, you know, I think that their their views or political views are different from one another. Um, you know, at the end of the day, the you know the guy, you know, maybe I maybe I handled the situation. I'm, I'm told I'm often rude in situations like that. I have no doubt that I was. I, <laughs> I wasn't racist. I didn't even know. I didn't even know he was black. Uh, yes, he reminded me correctly. He was many shades lighter than I am. But, but you know, was I as uh, polite as I possibly could have been? Probably not. 
But the thing that it caused me to add to the book was uh, not only a, a telling of that story, but the chapter right in the middle of the book, which is about the, the, the title of the chapter, I think, is actually called The Need to Forgive. And you know, if the thesis of the book is that we need to move from a culture of victimhood to a culture of reviving a shared pursuit of excellence, that's a, that's a 180 degree move. And the path from victimhood to excellence, I think, actually runs through this quaint idea that we've forgotten in our country called forgiveness. And I think it's a tough place to go. But I, um, you know, I think I, I went from and remain in my heart of hearts, a, a warrior for the principles I care about, but acknowledging that the bridge to the place we need to go may run through an uncomfortable place that we call forgiveness. And that might be the most important chapter of the book. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, always insightful, always interesting. New book out September 13th, Nation of Victims, Identity Politics, The Death of Merit and the Path Back to Excellence. Everyone go get it. Vivek, thank you so much for joining the show and give me your time. I, I really appreciate it. Appreciate it, Lisa. Good talking to you. that was interesting. Vivek Ramaswamy. I've had him on previously. Uh, He's such an interesting guy, always very insightful. So I wanted to hear from him. I hope his book is a huge success. The first one was. uh, And I'm always interested in what he he has to say. I appreciate you guys for listening. Uh, Thanks for Drew Steele for pitching in to help put together the show. Uh, Please leave us a review. Rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Always like hearing from you every Monday and every Thursday. But you can listen throughout the week. The Truth with Lisa Booth. Thanks. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.